Um, so it is really my distinct pleasure to introduce to you today uh, the speaker, Dr. Jessica Bunin. Um, so she's here today to give us our second uh, of many of our, our new lectures, which is this DEI curriculum. Um, Dr. Bunnan is an assistant dean of faculty development, associate professor of medicine at Uniform Services University. She's also the program director for the Critical Care Medicine Fellowship. She's been um, instrumental in kind of thinking through this DEI curriculum with me, and I am very happy to have her here today sharing with us her talk on operationalizing solutions for implicit bias. Jess, thank you so much for being here with us. I can't wait to hear your talk. Well, thanks so much. Um, I am thrilled to be here. Oh, you're um, mute, I baby. Will... Oh, can you not hear me? Okay, sorry, that was me. Yep, go ahead. Okay, perfect. Um, so I do want to say um, I am a little bit old-fashioned, and so if at any point anyone would like to unmute and just flat-out talk and ask questions, I would be thrilled for that to happen. Um, that being said, we'll have a lot of other forms of interaction as we move through the session. Um, and to begin with, the QR code that you're seeing in front of you, um, that should take you to my Poll Everywhere site, which when we get to our first question should um, automatically pop up for you. So um, bust out your phones and, um, and make sure that works for us. I have nothing to disclose. Um, I will disclose a good amount of personal information as we move through this, because um, I think we have to do that. I think we have to um, admit who we are, um, how we became who we are, and how we move forward together um, in a respectful environment. So um, I'm going to encourage you guys to do that as well. I will also say that there's a good chance that I'll say something along the way that might offend you, and that is 100% not my intent. So if I do so, I would love you guys to call me out on it on the spot. Um, so I will shoot for progress and not perfection, and I'm going to encourage you guys to do the same. Um, in the meantime, I would love you to grab a blank piece of paper. We're going to have some, um, a couple minutes of reflection here and there throughout where I'd love you to take some notes. Um, we'll have a a couple questions that you'll need to do some math. I know math is hard. I promise this will be easy math. Um, math on. So if you can just grab a blank sheet of paper or a receipt or a napkin or something along the lines, that would be great. And what we're going to cover today is we'll reflect upon the ubiquity of biases. They exist. We all have them. Um, it's why we are who we are. But we're going to then link those biases to the actions that result um, as we experience them. Um, and some of those actions may be great and some of them may be problematic, but we can't make all of them great until we start talking about them. We'll come up with some methods to address our individual biases. And then finally, we'll actually talk about some systemic biases, too, and how we can help our systems overcome some of these systemic biases. So Howard Ross has spent his um, adult life uh, working on implicit bias and the such, and he thinks that bias is like breathing. And I'm going to totally agree with that. Um, if, if we all say we don't have biases, it's, it's just plain not true. Uh, we don't have a choice of whether or not to breathe to exist, and we don't have a choice about whether or not we have biases. Some will be implicit, some will be explicit. When I talk about implicit biases, I'm talking about the associations that are made at an unconscious level. So we're by definition not aware of them. So to put that into an image form, um, if you look at this and that's an iceberg, we have sort of this line that divides us. Um, and if we say, oh, I know what my biases are, well, then those are our explicit biases. And as soon as we say, um, I don't 
think I think that, well, that's the definition of an implicit bias. Well, we can't know um, what it is. We can't know how it's affecting our behavior because it is by definition under the surface, even for ourselves. So we don't know it's there. The beauty of this though, is that we can keep decreasing that waterline so that we can become more and more aware of ourselves, our behaviors, why we act the way we act, why we think the way we think, and have more of our life that's explicit and leading to the behaviors that we're proud of, and less of our life that's implicit and potentially leading to behaviors that are not serving ourselves or others. So to think about this again, it's unconscious. Interestingly, it's often the exact opposite of what we're saying out loud. Um, it's automatic associations. Um, and sometimes I think of this as like the placebo effect, which is um, a good analogy for me with implicit biases, because we always say like, as doctors, we know that the placebo effect exists. But part of us also believes that if it's us, that's the patient, we are not susceptible to the placebo effect. But in reality, we are. And we can say also as smart people who have spent our lives studying and trying to understand ourselves better, that we don't have implicit biases any longer. But again, we do. I'm going to ask you to, to think as you speak um, for the next day, and maybe it'll even become a habit, um, about any time the word but comes out of your mouth. Um, anytime the word but comes out of your mouth, it's often a sign that we are trying to defend some unconscious implicit bias. So just sort of take note of when you find the word but coming out of your mouth. But um, I think an important part for us to start this is to understand where our own personal biases come from. Um, and I'm going to share with you that um, it just means that I'm probably a lot older than a lot of you. But um, the very first movie I ever saw in a movie theater was Grease. Um, it was 1976. I was three years old. I recall standing on my chair, like so excited as things were happening. I was crying at points. I was laughing at points. I was cheering during the car race at the end. Um, but I, I do believe that a lot of my personal implicit biases, or now maybe somewhat explicit, were driven by images like the images that are portrayed in that movie. So the women were supposed to hang out together and be pretty and be on the bleachers and sing songs. And the men were supposed to be fixing the cars and drag racing and doing the tough stuff. And, um, and the women couldn't get away with doing anything wrong and had to just be kind and sweet and couldn't speak their minds. Whereas the men could say and do whatever they wanted and that was okay um, and even really expected. And so this is a lot for me personally um, about what my life was like. Um, and I came from a very also, um, my mom was a nurse, my dad was an engineer. It was like sort of all the stereotypes of what women are supposed to do and men supposed to do. I really grew up with a lot of that. So I'm going to ask you guys, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to just think and jot some notes down. Where do your personal biases come from? What are some of your earliest memories? Who were your friends at different levels of school? Why did you prioritize education? Who encouraged you to do that? Why did you choose to go into healthcare? How did that start in your mind? What else, what other things you think might have contributed to who you are, how you think, and why you are the way you are? I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Is there anybody who's willing to unmute and share with me um, a little bit of what you think makes you you? I don't know that I have um, the answers to all the questions, Jess, but I think 
Um, some of it is that I grew up in sort of lost in the suburbs of Los Angeles. I was sort of upper, upper middle class growing up. I went to a private Catholic school. My friends were very much sort of upper middle class, uh, mostly white uh, people who were in the same private Catholic school with me. Uh, my dad had a PhD. My mom had a master's. So clearly there was a priority for education in my family. Um, I think I probably originally chose healthcare as a very young child because I think my mom had a regret that she didn't get her MD and kind of stopped at her master's. So that was kind of always her dream. And, and I think parents tend to sort of impose that dream on their children. Um, but that's sort of where I got to when I stopped writing. Yeah, awesome. I think all of those things are huge, right? The, the schools we go to, the religions we practice. I see also uh, someone commenting on religion and culture um, in the background. And, and yeah, a lot of this is often... Um, all occurred even before we had language for it, the, as far as the religion and culture goes. We grew up experiencing things and feeling things and believing things before we even had the words to express them. So yeah, perfect examples. Thank you guys for sharing. Um, so another um, analogy I, I want you to think about, I don't know if anyone's read this book by Daniel Kahneman of thinking fast and slow, but I think this is a great example of not only what implicit versus explicit biases are, but how we start to shift from this being something that's an ingrained part of ourselves to instead being a behavior that we can change. When we talk about system one thinking, this is the stuff that we don't have any control over. It's just what happens. This is um, someone pulls a gun out and you go, <gasps> like you don't get to think about doing that. You just do it. Someone makes a loud noise and your head turns towards that you do it. If I say bread, you say butter. If I say what is two plus two, you automatically say four, right? All of that is automatic thinking that you guys don't do anything effortful to make happen in any way, shape, or form. But then we have system two thinking, and this is where we have to start taking ownership for our behaviors, for our choices, for our thinking processes. And this is where now we can start to make a plan to fix things, make them different, make them better. Um, and I hope that as you go through the course of today, you'll start thinking about how can I dig a little bit deeper? How can I make some effortful activity to try to understand myself better? So we think of the implicit biases or the system one, the more thoughtful stuff is the, the system two. We tend to rely, however, on that system one thinking when we don't have a lot of good information, when we have, don't have enough time to, to think about things. Um, if for some reason we've, we're compromised from a cognitive standpoint, whether we're just too tired, whether we have substances on board, um, whether we're too stressed, whatever the case may be, or if we have a lot of different things coming at us, then we tend to fall back onto that system one thinking or that implicit bias. Implicit biases persist and are powerful determinist behavior precisely because we lack awareness of them. Again, today we're going to increase some of that personal awareness. So interestingly, on top of all of this, the fact exists that our, a lot of our implicit biases actually have benefits. They've actually maybe saved our lives on occasion. Um, they've prevented us from being injured or hurt or burned, um, et cetera. So there's reasons that these exist. So even if we could change them, we don't want to change them all, right? We just want to be aware of which ones are serving us and which ones are not serving us. So having implicit bias is 
a sort of a quality of existing. You don't have a choice of being a human without them. Um, and again, they can be protective. And when they're not protective, they can be mitigated. And again, impossible to remove them and we don't even want to. So back to the poll everywhere. If you guys didn't get a chance to log on the first time, there's our QR code again. And I'm gonna ask you guys, as human beings, as individuals, what things do you think that we have biases for or against? Yeah, appearance. We'll dig into some more about appearance, but certainly, right, there's things that we're just inherently attracted to, other things that we're not attracted to. Same personalities, appearance, same idea. So what other things do we have biases either for or against? Yeah, education level for sure. Race, yes. Styles, for sure. Politics, yes. And some of these may be implicit, um, but I'm going to guess that a lot of them are um, more actually implicit often than explicit. And now I want you to shift your brain a little bit. So that's the, you as human beings, the biases you have. What now do you think as healthcare providers, what biases do we have for or against? Weight being one. I see Ryan wrote snakes. That's funny. I like it. Um, yeah, substance use. Absolutely. There have actually been a good number of studies done that show us that we have less empathy for people when we feel that they are somewhat responsible um, for the behaviors that led them to needing our care. COVID, absolutely. COVID vaccination specifically, yes. Um, yeah, compliance, absolutely. Uh, substance use, I think I see in there. Social history, all sorts of parts of the social history. These are really great. Um, so when I always, when I first start this, we hear so much about healthcare disparities. I think our brain automatically goes to race and ethnicity are the things that we have biases for or against. But you guys are on it, right? Like all of these things are things that we have biases for or against. So perfect. Thank you for sure. Oh, tattoos. I like it. Body art is on there now. Gender for sure. Okay. Awesome. So I think you guys got actually most of these, but if we look at this systematic review of implicit bias in healthcare providers, it certainly starts off with race and gender being the primary things that we think about or maybe don't think about that we have biases towards without thinking about them. But also age, disability, mental illness, weight we talked about, sexual orientation, certainly socioeconomic status, and then again, this idea that some person's behavior actually contributed to their disease process. So whether that's um, IV drug abuse, whether it's car accidents, where it, whether it's self-harm, um, whether it's not getting COVID vaccination, once we start feeling that people are responsible for ending up in our environment, then we have sort of less empathy and, and more biases towards them. And again, we can't start changing our behaviors and treating people like we all deserve to be treated until we sort of bring this to the forefront of our mind. Okay, so now I want us to think about some of the consequences, behaviors and actions that lead to this. So now I'd like you guys to bust out your cell phones for me. And I want you to write down the initials of five people that are in your cell phone right now that you could call if you had a personal question or you need a place to rest your head tonight. Who are you going to call to do that? Write down the initials of five people that meet that criteria. Okay. And as you write down those five people, I want you to give yourself a point for each person who is a different gender than you. 
for each person who is a different race than you, for each person who is a different sexual orientation than you, or at least that you know that they're a different sexual orientation than you, and one person who is outside of the profession of medicine. And do that math for me. I promise this is as hard as the math is going to get. Um, for the extent of today, but you should have a score um, that's somewhere between zero and 20 at that point. And I'm going to ask you to go back to poll everywhere. So there's your QR code again. If you've already logged on, you don't need to re-QR code it. It should just pop up. But what was your score? Okay. This is, I don't know if more is common, but this is pretty common. Um, it's actually the, the folks that tend to have higher scores tend to be the people that are minorities in their population, whatever that might mean um, in any given context. But most of us tend to score somewhere between like two and six um, if we're not like sort of an absolute minority in our community. So interesting to think about what this represents is your personal biases, right? So the type of people that you're going to call if you need help. The type of person that you're going to say, man, I just need a place to stay tonight and I'm embarrassed to ask, but can I put my head down on your couch? Like those are the people that for some reason you have an implicit bias to trust them, to want to be around them. Um, this is representative of your personal implicit bias. So this is exercises like this are one way we can become more aware of what they are. Another way is to do the implicit association test out of Harvard University. Um, can you guys just give me a, a Y or an N in the chat box of if you've ever done an implicit association test through Harvard before or through any other service? Yeah, looks like a lot of folks have. Okay, perfect. Um, if anyone hasn't done, and there's like a couple of Ns. So there's tons of different types of implicit association tests when you go to this site. Um, it gives you the option of doing sexual orientation, gender, weight, um, how you feel about weapons, um, how you feel about race, ethnicity, religion, etc. Um, so you can do a number of them and test yourself. One that I did recently was um, looking at my uh, biases of towards gay people or towards straight people. What you have to know about me to understand my score on this is that I'm a gay woman who, as of yesterday, has been married eight years as Annie knows, we just had a conversation about this. Um, but interestingly, when I did this, I scored in that 15 percentile bar. I was someone who had an automatic preference for straight people over gay people, despite the fact that I am a gay person and the person I love most in the world is a gay person. Um, so it's really interesting to sort of understand, like if you had asked me, I would have said, nope, I, I think the same, which is again, definition of an implicit bias that was not aware that that was a thing for me. So um, one, a few things I'm going to encourage you guys after we get off this call today to do one of these tests, but I want to I want you to go into it with a few things in mind. So the score that you get on your implicit association test is completely um, variable, right? Like the fact that you do the test in and of itself may change your own personal awarenesses and how you score on the test the next time. So as you do this, I'm going to encourage you to receive your scores with curiosity and think, huh, where do I fall on the bell curve of the world right now with respect to this specific issue, whether that's weight, gender, religion, weapons, whatever the case may be, just where am I? Go into it without an idea of judgment or shame or blame or guilt. Um, don't feel like you should be disheartened by what you learn about yourself. 
it is completely a measure of one point in time of what your unconscious you have you don't even have responsibility for them at this point their unconscious thoughts are and again simply by doing the test one time and bringing your attention to it you get to make yourself be more aware be better change behaviors for the better based on it so again here's the link for that um, if you want to do that after the fact we're not going to do it today um, it does take about 10 minutes um, to do it's completely worth your time so i'm going to encourage you to do it and if anyone wants to um, share with me their results after the fact. I, I'm always happy to discuss that. I think that this is um, a fascinating experience. So just like the results of your implicit association test, implicit bias in general is malleable, right? It was previously considered this thing that was just part of who we are. We can't do anything about it. We can't combat it. It's something, like I said, where it's unconscious. It's therefore a blind spot. We can't fix it or change it. I prefer to think of it as something that is indeed a, a malleable factor that can change the way we behave, right? And so um, this then makes it less frightening. We can have sort of less resistance to dealing with it and thinking about it and talking about it. It can make us easier to change our behavior for the better. And it can make it less threatening to our core beliefs when we get to the idea that, wow, as soon as I become aware of my core beliefs, I can actually change them, which is sort of exciting or at least I can let them allow me to be a more successful person in the long run. Okay, so some of the other actions that come out of our implicit biases are things like this. So when you're working with trainees, if you're working with a third year medical student, you're given a lecture to 20 people, who do you call on first? When you have med students rotating with you in the ICU, whose names do you remember? Why is that? Um, this has always struck me as really interesting. I was a psychiatrist before I was an intensivist. And I, across the board, if I had a patient who had major depressive disorder, the second time I met them, I would see their name on my calendar and I could not picture who they were. Like I just couldn't connect the name with the face. Um, and, but if someone had bipolar disorder, you better believe that I remembered that person. So that was like a bias of mine. But this reveals something about you is whose names you remember. Who do you spend more time with? What do you write on the evaluations of your learners? Do you comment on skill level or do you comment on soft skills or personality styles? And then who do you choose to mentor? And do you make a conscious effort about that or is that something that happens below the surface? So these are some of the actions that may result in a training environment from our implicit biases. In a patient care environment, who do we have more empathy for? Who do we spend more time with? Right? We, in the ICU, we sort of can decide how much time we need to spend with people unless, of course, you know, someone's clinical severity is dictating it for us. But is there someone that you've just chosen to reveal more of yourself to or gotten a better history from or just spent more time with? Are there families you connect with more? How do you talk about patients in front of your peers or with other providers? And then how much information are you offering them? Are you making subconscious judgments about how much about their medical illness they may be able to understand or not? And is that affecting how you're caring for them? And then finally, like, whose names do you remember? So sort of the same idea as the trainees. Uh, there may be people who stick with you more than others. All of these are consequences of those subconscious thoughts. And it can even be fatal. So this was a very sad story that happened in January of 2020 that 
Um, this woman went to an emergency department, um, sat uh, severely short of breath in the waiting room for hours, um, couldn't get care. And so finally she left. Um, and then before she could make it to another emergency department, she died. So it turns out um, that she was postpartum and had uh, heart failure, postpartum heart failure, and resulted in her death because she didn't get the care that she needed in the emergency department to which she first arrived. Um, I suspect that a good portion of that was due to the implicit biases of those who cared for her or should have been caring for her. All right, so how do we address these biases? So now we are making ourselves a little bit more aware of them, so that's part of the battle. I'm going to give you a couple other examples of ways to uh, sort of grow and expand yourself as we're learning more about ourselves. So I'm going to give you so four different models. Uh, we'll go through each one one by one. So the first is the acknowledge, identify facts, and then use other instruments. If we look at the image in front of us, um, it, it seems to us when we see it at some points like they're straight lines and then other times it looks like curvy lines. I have to acknowledge that maybe I'm not seeing things clearly. Maybe I'm not seeing things as they actually are, right? So then I have to figure out how do I tease that out? What do I do about that? Well, maybe if I get myself a piece of paper or a ruler and I lie it against the lines, then I can tell that it's actually straight lines. It's just playing with my eyes. And so then that ruler or piece of paper might indeed be the other instrument that would help us. So a way that we can apply this to our life is say we are thinking about interviewing trainees for our program, right? We have to acknowledge that maybe we're not seeing everything that's important about this person, or maybe what we are seeing isn't representative of the truth, right? And we have to sort of acknowledge that. Um, and so we may choose someone who uh, went to an Ivy League school because um, we have a bias towards Ivy League schools, but, but in reality, if I identify the facts, maybe I have someone who um, went to community college first and then graduated from a state school, maybe they are actually the better candidate than someone who graduated first in their class from Harvard, right? But how do I know that? I have to use other instruments. So as an example, um, I may want to use um, personality tools. I may want to use more structured interviews that reveal the same amount of information about all of my folks, or I may um, want to not use standardized tests that may be revealing more bias. I may want to try to understand how their problem-solving skills function, right? Like I may want to use other instruments to try to understand people. So that's an example of how we can make sure we're overcoming our personal biases in professional situations, is to acknowledge that maybe we're not 100% correct, identify the true facts, and figure out other instruments to do the true measurement with. Another is um, this acronym of PRISM, which means perspective taking, uh, meaning instead of just assuming I know someone about them, I'm actually going to put myself in their position and try to understand how they might experience a situation. Pro-social behavior, this is talking about trying to do something good for them or practicing empathy towards them. Individuation, um, this is referring to uh, just because now you know I'm a gay woman, uh, you should still think of me as Jess Yunin. Uh, the intensivist with a really big heart, um, as opposed to just some other gay woman, right? Because then you'll get to know me instead of getting to know me by my stereotype. Stereotype replacement is actually finding someone who meets, fits into a category of person, but definitively doesn't 
appear like your personal stereotype of how that person should appear. Um, so, uh, for example, if you thought that uh, all gay women um, love snakes, I told chose snakes from our earlier uh, chat comment, but then you find out that I don't like snakes, then maybe you want to spend more time with me to sort of like overcome that stereotype. Sort of a silly example, but and then practicing mindfulness of just trying to understand how you experience all the people around you so you can make things as good as possible for them. So, so far we've had um, our acknowledge, use facts, use tools. Now we have our prism, which is sort of thinking consciously about these different behaviors that might help us understand our fellow man better. And then interesting, I love this one because this can happen to us and we have to have a plan. Right. So what if someone points out that you had a behavior that represented your implicit bias and it hurt someone? What do you do? So I'm going to say step one is that we breathe. Step two is that we just listen to the feedback. Don't say anything. Don't think anything. Just make all efforts to clear your mind, not be angry and hear. Then step out of the situation, reflect. Take some time to think about what was that, what was going on with me when I said or did that? How did I experience it? Check your assumptions that were a part of it. And then you got to find a friend, right? You have to find someone who you trust to be 100% yourself with, who you aren't worried about them judging you or changing who they think you are based on the story you're about to tell them. But you have to tell them the situation that happened, the feedback you got, how you're feeling about it. And get some guidance from there about how they think you should handle it. So, so far, you've not actually done anything to remedy the situation at hand. Then you have to go back and do some more reflection and processing your feelings, because hopefully that person who you trust um, has given you some constructive feedback that maybe doesn't feel great to hear. And then and only then do you go back and apologize, readdress the conflict, See if you can have it have a different outcome than before. I think this is so important for us to think about and do because you don't want to just say, oh, I'm sorry, and leave it at that. You really want to have meaningful change. And in order to have meaningful change, you have to reflect yourself and you have to get some external guidance um, and sort of redirecting to, to actually make a meaningful difference. So someone else points that out to you, this is what I'm going to encourage you to do. And then in general, this is the Cook-Ross model. That's one of sort of the better accepted models of how to deal with your own everyday biases as you become aware of them, which is to recognize and accept it, even if you don't like it, even if it makes you uncomfortable. Use your own flashlight, take a deeper look at yourself. Practice constructive uncertainty. This means saying a lot of things like, what happens if I'm not right about that? What are some other possibilities of the truth in that situation? Why might I have reacted that way? Explore all the awkwardness and discomfort that the, um, the bias about yourself that you're not comfortable with brings you. Then again, find some other people that you trust that you can bounce this off of. And then get some feedback and try to grow yourself around this model. So those are our four models. I just want you to be aware that they exist. I can send you more information about them if you're interested, um, but I think really helpful to sort of process with. And then I just, again, want you to take one minute and I want you to think about which of those models resonates with you, which one scares you, why?
All right, I'm going to keep moving on, but I'm going to encourage you guys to spend some more time um, thinking about that this afternoon. And that's going to take us to our final objective. So now I'm going to ask you to shift. And we're going to shift from this idea of we have these personal implicit biases that affect our behaviors. And now we're going to look at some of the more systemic biases and how this may affect us or affect others around us. Um, so when I think about this, I love this. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen this um, Kamara Jones uh, TED Talk, but it's really wonderful you have it. I think it's like 10 or 15 minutes of your time. Um, she talks about the fact that systemic biases is like the flower pots on your front porch. And you have two flower pots. One of them has been there for three years. You haven't really tried to grow anything in it. It has a bunch of old dirt in it. Um, and so you throw some pink seeds into that one. But then you realize you want it to be balanced out. So you get another flower pot and you put it on the left side. You get new fresh soil and you stick the new fresh soil in there. And then you throw some red seeds in there. Well, now, um, clearly, the pink ones that things didn't grow in before, which is why you stopped trying to grow things there, um, didn't really grow so well. So they don't look as pretty or as fruitful as the other red ones that look so lovely on the other side of your porch. But then if we think about it, it's because, well, that side's not getting the rain. That side's not getting the sun. Oh, and by the way, that side had some pretty crappy soil to begin with. But now you have just reinforced your bias for red flowers. You've convinced yourself now that going forward, I'm only going to plant red flowers because they grow better. They look prettier. They do well overall. So I'm not even going to bother with those pink jokers anymore. Right. Um, so I think that this so well represents the idea of uh, systemic biases being the soil, the water, the sun, um, but in our world, it's the laws, the policies, the traditions, the institutions, the media, the opportunities we're given, etc. This is what systemic biases are, and um, I would love to hear from you guys when we um, move closer to the end about if this, as you sit with this and as we move forward, if this resonates with you or not, if this makes sense to you. But then I'm going to ask you to bust out your paper and pen again. And I would love you to answer for each of these nine uh, indicators here. What percentage in 2016 to 2017, um, what percentage of these groups do you think were white? What percentage of U.S. Congress was white? Just jot a number down. Gut responses. What percent of U.S. governors? What percent of top military advisors? What, uh, what percent of people who were directing the top grossing films? What percent of publishers? What percent of music producers? What percent of teachers? What percent of college professors? And what percentage of owners of professional football teams? All of those, please jot down for me the percent that you think were white in 2016 to 2017. All right, and I'm going to move on because I just wanted gut responses on what you guys think about this. And then I want you to look at these and see how they compare to what you wrote down. And I'm really interested if anyone's willing to share on were there ones that they thought were surprising or was it pretty much what you expected? Military advisors, 100%, right? That's insane to think about 100% were white, for sure. Any others that folks found surprising? I was really struck actually by the owners of professional football teams. I thought that certainly um, was going to have a lower percentage of uh, folks that were white. I thought it would have a higher percentage of minorities or black 
folks leading those teams, but not true. Um, anyway, I'm going to encourage you to sort of process this. This is the definition of systemic biases. The fact that not only um, are these people uh, extraordinarily, I can't even say a majority, but almost entirely white, but now they are creating the laws of our land, creating the films that we watch, creating the music that we listen to, creating the education that we learn, and creating the, the sporting teams that we watch, right? Like it changes everything. It, and it's just this uh, sort of um, spiral, like this endless spiral of building and building um, that we have to figure out our ways to get into and, and start changing. And if as you were doing those and comparing your numbers to what was there, again, I want to bring to your attention the whole but, right? And anytime we're going to start defending or making excuses for it, um, sometimes that's going to be because we have good intentions and want to make excuses for it, but often it's going to be because we're trying to represent our implicit biases uh, and making excuses for the way things are. The bottom line is it's not okay that those numbers um, are where they are. All right, so bust out your phone for me again. We have another activity. Now I want you to write down the initials of five people who you're going to call if you have a professional question. You want to know what program to apply to next year. You want to know what job to take. You want to know how to save the person who's dying in front of you. Um, any of that. Write down those five people that you're going to call. Okay, now that you have those five people, same exercise. So one point for each person who's different gender, one for each who's a different race, one for who's a different sexual orientation, and then one for who's in a profession outside of medicine. And again, somewhere between zero and 20 should be your score, and I'd love to know what your score is. Okay, I think I've had more than two people since it shifted a little on me there that actually answered it. We're just following out 50-50. Um, but when we did this before, it was representative of our personal implicit biases. Now, this is representative of the systemic biases, right? This is the people who have the jobs. So I suspect for several of the people who answered greater than 10, I suspect that you're probably a minority within your program, whereas the folks who are more in that three to six range are probably more the majority of their program. But again, this is indicating to us what our systems represent at this point. So I would love you to compare in your own mind how your answers the first time around and this time around have changed and the type of people that you're surrounding yourself with in either of those scenarios, your personal versus your professional life. Okay. All right, so um, as you process how your scores compare, I want us to really think about, so I said, you know, we have to do something about the fact that these are almost, you know, in the 90 to 100 percentile of folks that are white that are doing these jobs and we don't have the diversity that we know is beneficial, what can we do about it, right? And so first I'm going to tell you what doesn't work. Um, so Harvard Business Review fortunately figured this out for me, so I didn't have to figure it out. Um, but what they said is mandatory diversity training does not work. So uh, we get poor returns if we force people into training that they don't want to attend, right? And um, it doesn't work if we are testing people um, to get specific jobs uh, and because folks may be more stressed in environments, may test worse. Like it doesn't help us decide who belongs in our systems if we test individuals. And what definitely doesn't work is grievance systems. So um, anytime we are going to have 
um, any system that's going to encourage retaliation or make people fearful of the system or fearful of having hard conversations um, are not going to be helpful. So grievance systems, definitely not helpful. So don't do these things. Don't make all your diversity training mandatory. Don't test individuals to decide who belongs in your programs and don't institute grievance systems. So bottom line to the numbers sum it up, your organization will actually end up being less diverse, not more, if you require managers to go to diversity training, regulate their hiring and promoting decisions, and put in a legalistic grievance system. So don't do those three things. What does work, however, is mentoring diversity task forces. So people who want to be doing this job, who are dedicated to doing it well, those work. And then having diversity managers who are going to be in there fighting for folks, those things work. So if we're going to increase our diversity in our environments, these are the ways to do it. And some other more specific folks to think of, uh, specific uh, interventions to think about to get folks intervening. Um, so engagement is key, contact is key, and then social accountability is key. So when I say engagement, this means uh, I'm getting out into my community and I'm recruiting in every different way that I can think about recruiting. And especially I'm reaching out to others to get advice on how to do this in, um, in more creative manners than I've ever done it before. So creative recruitment strategies do it. Um, encouraging mentorship at all levels, particularly cross-cultural mentorship um, is huge to get folks on board with diversity and, and sort of overcoming some of the systemic biases that we find ourselves in in the, in the world of medicine. Contact helps. Um, in World War II, they found that uh, whites who, spoke, who had Blacks in their platoons, they actually had lower rates of racial tensions, which is sort of fascinating, right? Like you would think that if you had both in World War II timeframe we're talking about, so before civil rights movement, if we had whites and blacks, we actually, that was actually showed to be better um, with less stress, less racial tensions than if we didn't. Um, because working side by side makes us realize that people are people and everyone's individual and everyone has their own traits. And maybe some of those are related to some stereotypes, but, it, but maybe not, right? So maybe it's just the individual. And so I always think about this. Um, a big one for us in our environment was our NICU nurses and our SICU nurses and our PICU nurses. When I was out, um, I worked at Tripler for a while, which is um, a military hospital in Hawaii. Um, there was like so much anger towards all the other services. So we decided we were just going to do all cross training um, for all of our nurses. So NICU, PICU, SICU, they were all going to sort of like have a day of the week where they were in a different unit than they were used to. And it really made a big difference with how well people got along. There was more social activities after hours that was sort of cross-pollinating. Um, so any cross-training that you can do to bring each other together to, to understand each other better is going to be great. And then this idea of social accountability is huge. Um, so as soon as uh, pay differences, for example, gender-based pay differences, as soon as people have to publish their pay scales, um, then pay differences go away, 
right? So we have to figure out ways that we can be held accountable to each other, that we can be more transparent towards each other. And this is where I want you guys to really deep, dig deep and come up with some ideas for me. So back to poll everywhere. Um, so you don't have to have a one word answer on this. You can put a whole sentence if you like. But how can we increase accountability in our training programs or in our, our healthcare systems to increase diversity and decrease bias? And more importantly, decrease the negative impacts of, of bias. Yeah, so I'm mentoring, absolutely, that's going to make a difference. And how do we um, increase the, uh, the visibility? of how we're mentoring and how we're matching mentors and mentees and how we're recruiting. So I want you guys to sort of think deep into this. Yeah, even today, right? Just having some unconscious bias training helps. Open discussion case studies, love it. Yeah, diversity task force. Yeah, I would love it. You can absolutely steal things we already talked about for sure. Yeah, transparency and hiring. Exactly how the hiring process works, exactly who was included at different stages along the hiring process, and what uh, diversity criteria they're meeting. Absolutely. Yes. So in order to get more minorities in leadership, though, how do we do that, right? And I think our mentoring and our transparency and hiring, all of those are going to help us get there. But absolutely, we need people to have role models in positions of leadership and authority in order for people to believe that they belong there and can get there um, and that are going to do the things like we just talked about, uh, be the people that are making the policies, be the people that are making the laws, um, all of that stuff. Absolutely. We have a couple more seconds in case anyone has any more. Okay. All right. So some other things to think about as far as this is concerned, unconscious bias training, particularly for committees, um, for uh, admissions committees, for search committees, for hiring committees, for pay discrepancy committees, like for all of these sorts of committees uh, having unconscious bias training ahead of time. This has been shown time and again in studies to make a big difference um, in the, the classes that are admitted, for example, to medical school. Um, one of the bigger studies done out of Ohio State where they really showed this. Ensuring the committees themselves are diverse and inclusive. So again, the difference between diversity and inclusive. So not only do we have uh, different races, gender, sexual orientations in the committees, but they have equal amounts of power among the different people, right? That inclusion is being part of creating that power within the committee. And then things in our uh, admissions and promotions committee, scoring rubrics are helpful, structured interviews make a difference. And then focusing, ensure we're focusing on credentials instead of what someone looks like or, or where they went to school, um, et cetera, et cetera, using solid data that we know we care about. And then most importantly, we have to collect data over time and monitor the improvements we're making and make sure we're not instituting things that are actually having the opposite of the intended effect. So in summary to all of that, uh, bias is definitely ubiquitous. We all have it. We don't want or need it to go away. Um, but our biases do have consequences that we can indeed control um, and we can actually make have better effects in the long run. And systemic biases also have consequences. And we have roles. Like we, sometimes we feel powerless um, in these discussions or situations, but we're not. Um, we have voices that we can be using. So one more poll for you guys. 
So hop on there one more time. And what I want to know now is what not is one thing can you do, but what thing will you do to decrease the effects of implicit bias in our profession? I should say decrease the negative effects of implicit bias in our profession. And I think that there's 28 of you out there. So I hope that we will get 28 answers right now um, to what will you do. Please commit to something. It matters. Um, committing to it, writing it down, it makes a difference. Mentor, great. Yeah, call out microaggressions. I love that. Perfect. Be an ally. Yes. Uh, improving hiring practices, giving and attending diversity talks, all of those things are huge. What I think is interesting right now is that all of the, the words are the exact same size, which means not, no one thing is standing out um, as everyone's going to do it. So it sounds like we have all different ideas about how to go from here, which is the right answer, right? We want to use um, everyone's diverse thoughts and perspectives and interests and qualities and skills to, to make the best of all of this. So I love it. Yeah, we have to be deliberate about all these things. I love that, that word deliberate when it comes to the DEI world, because we absolutely have to be very deliberate in all the decisions we're making. All right. Okay. And I'm really going to encourage you guys to, to tell each other um, what you came up with about the thing you're going to do to hold each other accountable to, to making a difference going forward. And um, with that, I'm happy to, if anyone wants to unmute and ask um, any other questions or just has comments, um, I would love to hear um, anyone's thoughts. 